Thanks uh, for the invite. I spoke about five years ago in Phoenix. I don't know if anybody in the current group was, was here. By the way, does anybody know Tom Hoffman? Or is he here? I had a fraternity brother, and the reason I bring this up is he was the first time I'd heard the word physician assistant. He was, this was mid-70s. And I asked him what he's going to do after he graduated, and he said, well, I'm going to become a physician assistant. At least it was a new concept to me in the mid-70s, and it's fun to see how this has grown, I guess, 20 years for this organization. Let me tell you a, a brief story about my trip over here, all the way from a mile away. Um, back in the old days, um, we used the biggest fear we had would be that the slide tray at the top would come off and fall over, and then just before you talk, you'd have, um, you know, 100 slides on the floor. Well. I was just getting in my car in the parking garage, and I said, I better check and see where my flash drive is one more time. And as I reached to see where it is, it fell between the seat and the console. And I said, oh, no problem. I've got a flashlight in the glove compartment, no. I said, I'll move the seat up, move the seat back, no. I said, what if it gets smashed? But anyway, I, I then went into my office, got a flashlight, and found it. And I thought, well, didn't, I, I decided from now on it's going to be in my billfold and in my pocket. Because the, the, the trays, the worst thing could happen, you turn them over, but at least they're big enough you wouldn't lose them. So, so anyway, uh, Julie was at my, one of our physician assistants who was saying, you know, Dr. Warworth, you never seem nervous. And I will say about 45 minutes ago when that was happening, Julie, I, I think I was nervous. Anyway, so I found it, and it looks like it's working. Um, we're, I was talking to Kristen uh, beforehand. I guess sometimes a meeting this size, it's kind of hard to, to have the nerve to ask questions up during the talk. And I, there's a principle I've, I've sold and told people about, which is if, if you have a question in an audience this size, at least 100 other people who had the question would really like you and be grateful. And so I don't mind stopping at any time to answer questions and just interact. I've done this, I, I put two pages together for your handout on your disk, and then after that I got to thinking uh, that uh, it would be a good bonus thing to put on a couple slides that are included here, uh, sort of the players. As you look at any kind of immunologic disease or any kind of inflammatory disease, and in a way a topic Dermatitis is more inflammatory and barrier defect than it is autoimmune. But the point is, virtually any of those diseases, you'll find something on that menu, that menu of drugs. And, and the reality of remembering a long list is it's a little bit like your phone number or your social security number. If, if the number gets lo as long as or longer than your phone number, your mind needs to kind of put it in area codes and prefix and actual number. So as you look at that handout, the way I put those two slides and magnified them and put it in that printout, it's just kind of a handy way to look at um, the immunologic drugs as well as the few of the antibiotic categories that end up being used in these settings. No relevant conflicts of interest. I'm usually pretty boring on that. We, I do have a clinical trial meeting at 12.30, which is kind of odd, but at least right after the, the, uh, the lunch session, I'll, I'll have to hustle away for that. But, I basically am on no speakers bureaus, and I, I like to be kind of a free to say what I want. I'm just, I pulled some pictures. I, I'm not one that the old 10,000 or so photographs I had in standard Kodachrome form, I've only transferred to electronic form maybe a couple hundred. But I borrowed a couple things from a reaction pattern just to introduce the players. So anyway, I put up just an acute contact dermatitis. Uh, this is somebody who uh, had too much to drink and fell asleep in a field of that had poison ivy. 
But certainly the same look, if you get a contact allergen like Mike Sheehan presented on the basis of an atopic patient, you could have this sort of finding. Here is a case where it's on the bottom of the foot and in that one distribution you mentioned, Mike, that I guess that would not be real frequently contact allergen. But nonetheless, this certainly is one subset. I think of both dyshydrotic eczema and numular eczema as subsets of atopic dermatitis. In fact, I think a better term to kind of unite everything is endogenous, genetic-based, like atopic, or exogenous, like poison ivy. Now, the reality is you take a room like this, supposedly only two-thirds will get uh, poison ivy, but even if you're exposed, but the reality is if somebody has an endogenous eczema, like atopic, and they do everything perfectly, they're still going to have some activity, and that would be more the picture on the left. And Mike, you may remember some of these from, from the reaction patterns talk. Here's one that isn't. This is a seborrheic dermatitis, kind of a stern-looking uh, airman at right pat. And here's somebody with just very lichenified skin on the lower extremity. So part of the chronic part of atopic dermatitis would be this sort of picture. One other one side by side. This, in this case, both of these are chronic subacute dermatitis atopic style. Chronicity is critical. And by the way, I've, I've got an hour and, and probably 45 minutes left, but the point is I'm going to just briefly go through background stuff like this, and then we'll get to the meat of the problem, which is the systemic drugs. But nonetheless, if we have kind of a, this is a late adolescent, my talk's supposed to be on adults, but if somebody's 16, 17, 18, my mindset for drug doses, my mindset for how I produce therapy and the safety is pretty equivalent to adults. But I, I think this picture on the left is a real telling picture. This chronic, uh, like canified look, very hyperpigmented, an African-American woman, a chronic component on her hands. Here's one that has both the numular eczema look and the dyshydrosis. And again, all these are just part of a continuum. And part of the challenge I'll address is how in the world do you decide who gets more aggressive systemic therapy or not? I borrowed this one from Visual DX. Uh, and I couldn't copy paste, so I, t I scanned it and turned it into a PDF. But when I saw this picture, the others were mine, this one I borrowed. Uh, Visual DX, if your institution has it, is just a wonderful resource for slides. Not, not cheap, but from an institutional standpoint, it's well worth it. But nonetheless, just a chronic dermatitis, lichenified, hyperpigmented, easily 10% of the surface area. So those are all the photos that I'll be showing. So let me just briefly go. I, I, I like to sometimes just sort of start a new talk. I, I haven't talked so much about atopic dermatitis as I have these specific drugs. So it's fairly easy to apply these drugs, such as methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclosporin, mycophenolate. Fairly easy to apply those to most of our inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. So if, if you just say, okay, look, what do you do with urticaria? What do you do with atopic derm? What do you do with pemphigus, pemphigoid, and so forth? Most all of them pull from the same menu that you have on the handout. So the players, and I'm gonna highlight the slide each time. You got just the pure black and white copy, but this is a long list put into area codes. And some of it kind of follows the sequence of my book, not completely. And uh, hopefully I didn't leave anything big out. But nonetheless, when I talk about traditional antibacterial, I'm talking about the era I grew up with. I was family practice for four years before I switched to derm. And staff RS was almost always sensitive to cephalexin or erythromycin. We used an awful lot of erythromycin in those days and just weren't aware of all the potential drug interactions. But as time passed, resistance became more common. So MRSA directed, you know, the two I left without italicizing, 
uh, tetracycline family, and we use doxy the most, and sulfonamide, particularly trimesulfa. How many people here have seen uh, uh, Scepter or Bactrim induced Stevens-Johnson syndrome? And usually it uh, takes about one case to squeeze your adrenals and make you say, look, I'm not sure I want to use that drug. But the reality is if it's somebody's newly reacting to it, the three-day course for urinary tract infection or perhaps seven days for um, MRSA, probably not as much a risk if the course goes two weeks or more. Keyword probably. But I'm fairly quick to use tetracyclines. Um, linazolid and some of those, I'm just against something that costs $1,000 for a 10-day course. I don't have, again, drug company ties, but that one they priced so high. And then the anti-inflammatory antibiotics, uh, players that uh, I'll pull not so much here as if you're treating acne or rosacea, but the tetracycline family macrolides and probably clindamycin and others will have some anti-inflammatory properties. So when somebody says, okay, we're worried about resistant bacteria with your acne therapy, try to limit it to three months. The fact of the matter is that if you're using it a decade or more like we historically have, resistance uh, is, uh, let me rephrase, anti-inflammatory properties are probably the predominant benefit of use that long. Resistance, if you really think about resistance, is bug and drug specific. Methicillin-resistant staph, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, uh, penicillin-resistant pneumococcus, and there's some other ones. So when it comes to doxycycline, staph usually is not resistant, and most other bacteria don't become resistant. So there are purists that come out and say, look, you know, we shouldn't use these long. It's reasonable to limit to three months, but that isn't a foolproof way to minimize risk. But from the standpoint of the talk today, this is a category to keep in mind. And then just some of the others in phototherapy, and you'll see when I put the next slide up, things in red are really what we pull from the menu here. So you had a kind of an imposing list, but then when you look, uh, cephalaxin, still probably some role in non-abscess producing infections and atopics. Uh, tetracyclines, trimesulfur, probably the best two choices for outpatient use for MRSA. Uh, doxycycline, if you do want to have kind of an anti-inflammatory component, uh, not common with this disease, and then PUVA historically and narrowband UVB. And I don't know, how many people have uh, uh, ever prescribed narrowband UVB for home use? Home use, about 2,500 bucks now. And how much money does it, let's take psoriasis now, how much money does it cost for a one month of Humira 40 milligrams every other week? 1,800, 2,500? And so it's, it's almost, one month of some of these biologics is almost the cost of a home unit. You don't usually use the biologics and atopics, but I'll give you a little spiel on that. But the fact is, if somebody benefits in the summertime, uh, it, it suggests that if you don't want to use systemic therapy that has some risk, that narrowband UVB may be good. And if 8, 10, 12 treatments, it works great, it's probably worth the $2,500 investment. Very likely the insurance companies will pick it up, not always. Okay, and uh, still introducing the players, and I'm just gonna go pretty quickly um, to the ones that I put in red. By the way, if you can say all of these, secukinumab, brodolumab, these are coming out supposedly in the next 12, 18 months. Ixakizumab was Lilly's drug. And myself and uh, Alexis Borkimbel were in on consulting in the early parts of this, and I don't have any idea why they chose that. But hopefully it's an easy to say trade name. You go back up a step, briokinumab off the market, use stecnumab, all the TNF inhibitors. I put omelizumab, rituximab in parenthesis, and you see a fair amount of literature on both these two for atopics. 
But the point is all the money is right there. Now highlight, you say, okay, which of this large menu uh, could be drugs for a topic? And very selectively, the, I put methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclosporin, and mycophenolate in its two forms in uh, uh, the same group. I just consider them kind of moderate immunosuppressives. And when, you, and when you look at our field, I, everybody says, you know, you gotta use evidence-based medicine. The vast majority of what we do isn't written up by the Cochrane Library or systematic reviews. You just have a moderate amount of evidence, some general principles you follow, and then your own personal experience. But usually, uh, for diseases like pemphigus, pemphigoid, atopics, and on down the line, that's the menu of four that we've used the most. Uh, rituximab has some literature, but the fact is I put it in gray because I think it's too much risk of things like progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy to justify for, for sure for kids and even probably for adults with atopic derm. So, but this one here, I'm gonna spend a little time, omalizumab, I just prescribed it a week ago, first time for the new indication for chronic urticaria. And there's some studies out there that show some benefit for atopic dermatitis. The trade name is Zolair, X-O-L-A-R. Kind of slightly overwhelming, but if I really just go backwards, I've, I've kind of highlighted that cephalexin, uh, doxy, trimeth for the MRSA, and uh, narrowband UVB is probably the highlights of this slide. And then moderate immunosuppressors, I just put a little dagger by all four. And then prednisone IM, or the oral, oral form of prednisone, or IM triamcinolone, has a pretty decent role that I'm going to highlight. Let's roll. So I've got about, on your handout, about a dozen questions or so that, that I put right below it, uh, some answers. The, what I just showed the last four slides were uh, uh, issues that are on that one-page extra handout. And by the way, when you, when you get a subject like this or any long list of things, if you can just get recognition recall, you don't have to be able to pull all these facts out of the air. Just realize, oh yeah, there's some moderate immunosuppressants. Let's, uh, oh yeah, azathioprine might be good. That's kind of how the mind works best, for test purposes or for uh, clinical work. How is it defined? The Hannafin criteria, I'll just spend a minute on, but it's uh, four criteria, paritis, central importance, uh, chronicity of central importance, so certainly the right lesions in the right locations um, are all key parts, and supposedly you have to have uh, three of the four to win. Anita Hagstrom, later day, brilliant woman who's one of our pediatric dermatologists, will talk about the childhood forms, and I'm certain she'll show more photos than I do. And then I just point out in this slide that, uh, trying to give you guys equal time, except it doesn't show very well over here, numular eczema, dyshydrotic eczema, I really do think are good examples of subsets of atopic dermatitis. And very selectively on those, we'll use um, the more moderate strength immunosuppressants and or prednisone and IM steroids. Number two, uh, what are some of the well-defined mechanisms? Matt Turner is a relatively young scientist with our group, and there's kind of a focus, Jeff Travers and him and some others that are atopic dermatitis researchers. But evidently, if in the chicken or egg kind of scheme of things, uh, of what came first, the barrier defect or the immunologic problem, most people say it's the barrier is probably the leadoff problem. Filagrin is important to barrier function. And then with that dysfunction associated hypersensitivity, and if, if you're into the science of some of these things, IL-4 is a B-cell uh, maturation kind of uh, interleukin. 
and IgE, of course, is a central part of allergic diseases. And abnormalities in those two, of course, are also very sensitive issues or very central issues. But if you had a test question, is, are any of you before any of you have not yet taken is, the certifying exam? Is, or is everybody here certified already? But if I, nevertheless, if you took a recertification exam, we'll put it in that context. Um, I'd put filaggrin as the one best answer if you had a, a quiz about mechanism. I had to add one. I don't, foods, I put an asterisk. I didn't have that on the handout. I, I was surprised I left that out. But here's a list that kind of goes as long as your, your main phone number without the area code, but it's still a manageable list of triggers. So you say, why is he, once he finally get to the drugs? Well, the fact is, no matter what you do with systemic therapy, it's always going to work better if you paid attention to the precipitators. In my, in my uh, primary care career, I would always say the same thing. If somebody has hypertension, it doesn't do any good, or let's say MI, it doesn't do any good to you know, try to treat with specific drugs to improve heart circulation without dealing with weight, smoking, diabetes, and all those things. Same point with atopic derm. If you haven't dealt with fingernails, xerosis, stress, and so forth, you're not going to do as well no matter what therapy you use. And by the way, I highlight in blue a couple of words, but life stress, disease stress. I, this has been, uh, we have a faculty member who's very into stress, uh, a guy who was sort of a mentor for Mike. And by the way, Mike Sheehan knew more about contact derm at the end of his first year than I have in my whole life. But one, his mentor in that area has been very fascinated by stress. But I think it's of interest to separate life stress, you know, relationships, money, children, versus disease stress itching, the appearance, the facial involvement, all that. And they can create a positive feedback loop. In other words, they can perpetuate the problem. The disease stress causes more itching, life stress this causes more itching, then you get into a cycle that if you don't deal with that one way or the other, and I'll tell you a couple things to consider, if you don't deal with that, then you're not gonna have as complete a response. The other one I highlighted in blue that I think is worth highlighting is propylene glycol. Propylene glycol is a very important ingredient in topicals uh, and I don't know if it came up in Mike's talk when I, before I got here, but it's a, uh, uh, very, it's a chemical that makes topical steroids more potent. If anybody was here before Diperlene, here practicing, before Diperlene came out, Diprazone became Diperlene when they added about 60% propylene glycol. And then when they found that irritated too much and they brought back and had less propylene glycol, it became a class 2 drug again. So it has its purpose, but in irritated, uh, excreted skin, very important to minimize exposure to propylene glycol. If they're not getting better with a topical steroid, read the label, see if propylene glycol's in it. And one of the handy things uh, for people who are into contact derm, uh, I have no financial ties, but Topicort and its generic desoxymedazone, ointment, cream, gel, lotion, all four propylene glycol free, and they're all from the, gr the group that has lowest risk of contact dermatitis. So at least if you're needing a stronger product, it's safe area, keep that one in mind. There's others. A few topical options, and on these next few slides, I'm just gonna highlight what's in blue. But you know, if you're thinking, okay, what can I do as basics for an atopic before you get to the more aggressive therapies? Emollients always matter. Topical steroids, wisely used, matter. I don't do it as much, but topical calcineurin inhibitors like protopic elodel would be of value. Usually that's because of their cost. It's not going to be so widespread for the cases that we're talking about. And then antihistamines. Even if you're having a systemic therapy, the fact is these still matter. 
And, and let me just skip ahead. I do a lot of IM steroids. I didn't used to, but at least lately, uh, last half my career I have. And the pa one patient came in this last week, and he was so typical. He says, you know, the shot got rid of it for two weeks, so I didn't feel like using anything topic. I'm sorry, two months. And then the patient said, I didn't feel like using anything topically because it, life was so much simpler by just having the shot. So, and then when it started to flare, he remembered that I said, okay, be sure and ramp up with emollients and topical steroids, especially as they flare as the shot wears off. I'm going to come back to that, but at least it kind of uh, is an important point where you need to persuade the patients that even if you're doing something systemic, whether it's psoriasis or atopic, make sure that you at least encourage the baseline treating the precipitators. Comprende? And by the way, questions, questions as we go are fine. And I, I guarantee I've never, ever, and never will humiliate anybody with that asks a question. And again, at least 100 of the other people in the audience are going to be extremely grateful if you do. But uh, consider that. So what do you do with antihistamines? And I didn't put a lot of detail on these, but you know, most people have tried diphenhydramine or Benadryl by the time they come to us. Whereas um, hydroxazine, I think, has an advantage, more bang for the bucks. It's just kind of an arbitrary experiential thing, but more antihistamine relief for a given level of sedation. I think different, when you look at non-sedating or less sedating antihistamines come out, they don't seem to work as well for atopics or urticaria patients as they did originally for allergic rhinitis. And I think it's just a matter of which of those conditions has histamine as the main itching ingredient, and which, like atopic, has a lot of other factors, kinins and various prostaglandins. And when they have things other than histamine causing the itch, you have to have at least some sedation. And in this case, uh, if you choose from the less sedating antihistamine, cetirizine, which is a metabolite of hydroxazine, um, has less sedation than hydroxazine, but at least enough that if you use it in the evening, they're going to get some benefit. Um, antidepressant antihistamines, you usually don't see those words together, but the two, uh, here I emphasize, doxepin and mirtazapine, those two have uh, a lot of sedation, and why do they have a lot of sedation? Is they have pretty strong antihistamine effect. In fact, I see a lot of people get sent in for using H1 and H2 inhibitors. Somebody for atopics or urticaria might use hydroxazine plus ranitidine. Well, the fact is, doxepin is as strong an H1 antagonist as there is in in vitro testing, and it has very strong H2 antagonist properties. So you really don't need the ranitidine in those settings. So if you talk about principles, I think very important. Uh, I have a case, I'm thinking about it, uh, uh, where somebody took the 30 milligrams at night of doxepin I was giving them, and their doctor just said, why don't you split it 10 milligrams TID throughout the day? And she describes falling asleep at a traffic light and bumping the car ahead of her and then suddenly waking up. And so it, that just is one case in mind that says you really don't want people driving and falling asleep due to your medication. So how do you avoid that? And the punchline is, um, if you're using hydroxazine, I think the perfect time to test it is do it right around dinner time while the patient's awake, at home, not driving. In contrast, doxepin is a bedtime drug. Best time to test somebody's tolerance there is to take it uh, an hour before bedtime and make sure it's a night that won't be followed by a 300-mile drive the next day. 
because there's a, maybe eighth, uh, eighth to one-tenth of the Caucasians, at least, that gets excessively sedated by doxepin. Mirtazapine has more pathways to be metabolized, and mirtazapine, probably less sedating, but I'm not sure it's as good as doxepin. Doxepin doses anywhere from 10 to 75 milligrams, usually marching up gradually, whereas mirtazapine goes anywhere from 7.5 to 45, and logically, in each case, you want to start low. If the lower dose works, you don't raise it. If the lower dose makes them a little bit sedated, don't raise too quickly. And generally, you'll find a dose that gives them a good night's sleep and daytime relief of itching. So is this advanced, as my title would say? And the answer is no. Is this part of a complete package? And the analogy I like to use when I'm teaching is like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, just picture, you can use topical steroids. Just picture all the different pieces. Emollients, topical steroids, antihistamines, and then you're adding phototherapy, or emollients, topical steroids, antihistamines, and perhaps cyclosporin. And so to make the complete puzzle, you have to touch on bases that aren't real advanced, but still important to the complete package. Oh yeah, when, when justify antidepressant antihistamines, there's words people use, and there's certainly looks on their face. Uh, you know, see somebody that just looks frustrated, or they'll say, this is driving me up the wall, this is driving me crazy. Those are the words that make me think about doxepin or mirtazapine. And remember again, there's a certain percentage of people that just can't tolerate doxepin and then decent for mirtazapine. Do I use it on everybody? No. Hydroxazine generally works for a high percentage, more than half. Do I use it on somebody that's just seen two or three different docs and they're coming in more frustrated than most? At least it gives you one angle that maybe they hadn't thought about. And it, it's a little bit of an art. In fact, I like, you know, if you're just picking a drug that's very under-challenging, Propecia. If somebody just gives one milligram a day, there's no monitoring. There's no dose adjustments. Whereas the doxepin, monitoring is the level of sedation. You may check a, check a blood level. And the fact of the matter is much more art, much more challenge to prescribe those. And when patients respond, hugely grateful patients. Systemic steroids, we have a little de debate in our own department about if somebody has hypertension or CHF or things like that, there's some, at least from a test-taking standpoint, advantage of dexamethasone. You'll see the neurosurgeons use dexamethasone on a head trauma because it doesn't retain sodium. But its length of action makes it less ideal. So in general, for the uh, systemic steroids, go low and slow. So this is sort of putting your toe in the water for advanced therapy. Um, I, I generally use prednisone. It has the right time, uh, right half-life. It has the right amount of mineralocorticoid effect. In other words, just a little touch of sodium retaining. And you can use it every other day fairly easily once disease control is attained. Uh, prednisolone, I, I come up in a point where if somebody has bad liver disease, Prednisolone is a good alternative. Methylprednisolone is no sodium retention. So if somebody says, the doc you work with or another colleague says, look, why don't we just use dexamethasone? The fact is that shorter half-life of prednisone, prednisolone, or methylprednisolone makes it a much better choice. And at least methylprednisolone, no sodium retention, if you ever have that setting. Then I am steroids. How many have used, first of all, beta-methasone um, forget the salt, but it's Celestone. How many people have ever given an injection containing that? A lot of people who historically have mixed Kenalog with Celestone. You get the sustained action Kenalog with the short action, quick action Celestone. 
And that's a reasonable thing. So, but for the most part, triamcinolone acetonide is kenalog. Triamcinolone diacetate is aristocort, little shorter duration than kenalog. So that's your backdrop. And then principles of steroids. Here, uh, then I think we launch off into the other drugs next. But, but the principles, um, I think one of the intriguing things as I watch my colleagues and, and referring docs and uh, uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, is um, people seem to keep people on the steroid longer than I think is safe and wise. So my first principle is get down to or below physiologic dose by three or four weeks. Atopic dermatitis, it's not going to go away. It's chronic, it's genetic, it's endogenous. And so if you use prednisone, it's an attack retreat. You don't want to stay on long term because in a sense, people get hooked on it. They're not hooked on it physiologically. They're hooked on it mentally because it works. Just set down the guidelines and you start. Three to four weeks and you, you will get down to physiologic. You may say, well, what is physiologic? But somewhere around five to seven and a half milligrams is what the body makes of an equivalent hormone. The cortisol the body makes can be translated to prednisone doses of five to seven and a half milligrams. So it doesn't matter so much if you're completely off as long as you're down to those physiologic doses reasonably quickly, attack retreat. Don't be rigid about one milligram per kilogram. In our center, a lot of people are very focused on that, but all the time on, on and I did this just, the, I guess it was Tuesday on an atopic type patient where I, I, I they had a flare and I, I think I was using 20 milligrams for three days, 10 milligrams for three days, five milligrams for three days, and then off. Lower doses than you hear sometimes are advertised. Sure, with a bad pemphigus, you might go one per kilo. Severe liver disease, that's where prednisolone can come in place of prednisone. Sodium conditions, sodium retaining conditions, at least think about methylprednisolone. And then finally, if you think about one of the drugs I'm going to focus on from here, let's say you're, you're at, the patient comes in today, and they're very severe, 10, 20% of the body or more. And you say, I think I need a steroid, but there's a pretty good chance if I follow the Wolverton strategy, I'll need a steroid-sparing drug, a moderate immunosuppressive. And they usually take a little while to work, so why not start both together? And that same rule can follow with pemphigus, pemphigoid, perhaps sarcoidosis. And, and so the rule is, if you think you'll need it in a month, strongly consider starting it right now. A little bit about IM. I went, let's see, I've been in, hard to believe this is true, I started in Durham in 83. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, so I'm just I'm getting all choked up. Actually not. <laughs> but uh, it's, been, it's been going fast. I don't know how many of you have been practicing 10 years or more, but it, it just goes quickly. But in uh, 83, I started Derm, and I, I'd say it wasn't until about 95 or so that one of my colleagues, uh, Tsui Chong, a Taiwan-based dermatologist who was at Mayo, then Wisconsin, then here, and then a couple other sunny spots, but he would just, he and I'd see patients on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons together. He'd write 80 on the board. And I noticed he was faster than me, uh, and I was slower and more talkative. But he'd write 80, and that just meant 80 milligrams of Kenalog uh, IM. And he used it very often, and then he left not long thereafter. And I inherited those patients, and I noticed so many docs when they give IM steroids, Kenalog in particular, 40 to 60 milligrams is, is often the, the amount. And it just seemed in case after case, not always, that 80 seemed to ex exceed a threshold um, that gave, let's say, put it this way, if, if 40 milligrams of Kenalog gave four weeks relief, 60 milligrams gave six weeks relief, 
80 seemed to give three to four months. It's nonlinear. There's some sort of uh, metabolism that got saturated, perhaps. But whatever the case, it, it, maybe two out of three people, that 80 works a whole lot better. And if you just think of the math, 40 milligrams every month versus 80 milligrams every three to four months, the uh, math is safer just to use the higher dose much, much less frequently. And if you do the math when you convert triamcinolone to prednisone doses, it comes somewhere between one and two milligrams a day. So then you might say, well, it's below physiologic. Why does it work? And the answer is a steady state. It has a kind of a constant dose that doesn't have the ups and downs of normal steroids. And that kind of duplicates what, if you had prednisone 40 milligrams a day versus 20 BID, the 20 BID is more potent because it gives a steadier dose throughout the day, even though you've given the exact same dose, but split it. So the IM steroid kind of imitates the split dose is the way to think of it. All righty, so let's, let's spend most of the rest of the time on these moderate immunosuppressants, a little bit on biologics, a quick thing on omalizumab, and a little bit on phototherapy. A couple of thoughts as, as we reintroduce methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclosporin, mycophenolate. Uh, there's a little nuance about each of these. First of all, at least the methotrexate, you know, there's, there's pros and cons given orally versus sub-Q. I emphasize the first pass effect in the liver such that you can only get about 25 milligrams into the body with methotrexate, and the liver chews up the rest. Whereas I'll have some people getting sub-Q methotrexate maybe using 37 and a half. It comes 25 per ml, and you can just go from there to just figure out what dose you're using. 25 uh, equals 1 ml, 37 and a half equals 1.5. So you can get more of it if you bypass the liver in less nausea as well. On the other hand, the total dose accumulates more quickly as you're totaling up the possibility for liver biopsies. Let me pause there by saying probably not an issue. Probably not an issue with methotrexate and atopics. In, in all the years that people said, well, you know, rheumatologists, they, they do, don't do liver biopsies and dermatologists do for psoriasis, and the answer there was, there's probably a standard deviation of body mass index between a rheumatoid arthritis patient and a psoriasis patient. The metabolic syndrome is the answer. The atopics, as a rule, don't have the metabolic syndrome that mandates liver biopsies. But just keep it in mind that it's, if you have some transamination changes, um, you're getting pretty high cumulative doses. To do it is reasonable, uh, even if it's not mandatory. Azathioprine, at least uh, just to emphasize the thiopurine methyltransferase. It's almost 20 years ago now that that came to our field. I think it's uh, pretty much mandatory anytime you use azathioprine. Cyclosporin and mycophenolate, there's some confusion on which formulation. And so cyclosporin first came out as Sandimmune. And, and let me just do this, just for curiosity. How many people have been in practice as a physician assistant for at least 10 years? Pretty good number, good. How many, this is like weddings, how many 20 years? Nobody else is looking when you raise your hand. Okay. But anyway, Sandimmune was always available about 20 years ago. And then along came Neoral. New oral is literally what that meant. It was an oral form that was better absorbed, more consistently absorbed. And there was supposedly a five to four ratio. For every five milligrams of Sandimmune was four milligrams of uh, Neoral. And then when that went off patent, GenGraph came out, and now everybody says, what is cyclosporin modified? The answer is all three of those. So if, if you want cyclosporin to be used and absorbed consistently, 
um, than the newer versions or what we routinely use. And there's probably a little cost savings to use either the trade name generic GenGraph or the so-called modified. Mycophenolate motopofatil is one step more confusing. Originally, it came out as Selcept. And uh, it came out about, depending on the dose, you know, $10,000 a year or more. Uh, and later on, I started noticing Medicare was pushing Myfortic, and I had to go back and learn, but mycophenolate sodium is Myfortic, mycophenolate mofatil is Selcept. 500 milligrams of Selcept equals 360 of Myfortic. So if somebody says you use four 500s of Selcept a day for a disease, then you're using four of the 360s of Myfortic. People got a few of those points? So why bother with this? Well, the answer is different insurance companies mandate different versions. Of these four drugs, if I pick one for atopics, I would pick cyclosporin on experience and data. The fact of the matter is you look for real convincing data and you'll, you'll never find it. This isn't the kind of disease that draw, draws in large, double-blind, multi-center trials. So you, you, the best you're going to have is moderate evidence with whatever experience you or your provider uh, that you work with have. But the point is, these four um, of those, I think Cellcept mycophenolate is the safest, easiest to use. Is it the best? I'm not sure. Is it easy, less monitoring, less worry? I think so. And for the most part, the category that's Cellcep, which is the Mofatil, or the sodium, which is enteric coated my 40, they're pretty much equal once you adjust for the dose. So the reason I go through this, in each case, there's a little different dose uh, for the newer version, a little lower dose for the newer version. And that's stuff you can always look up. When, when can you justify it? And you know, people talk about the art of medicine and the science of medicine. But the fact of the matter is we're blending the two all the time. Um, I think sometimes people talk about cookie-cutter medicine or cookie-cutter dermatology. When you try to make, everybody says, okay, Steve, what, do you, what sequence do you use these four drugs? And my first answer is depends if, and we'll talk about comorbidities in a second. And second answer is, you know, you, you just individualize it with each person. Now, how do you do that? And so certainly when somebody says this is, I can't function. This is driving me up the wall. I can't sleep. Those are the buzzwords that make me think not only for doxepin, but if it's relatively extensive, also for prednisone leading into some of these therapies. Um, the extent, you know, psoriasis is nice. It's so well studied that it's, it's a nice, you know, zero to three percent mild, three to ten percent surface area moderate, over ten percent severe. It's not that simple with atopics, but you could say ten percent or more certainly is getting severe. Failure of the, you know, the big four, so to speak, the emollient, topical steroid, calcineurin inhibitor, and antihistamine. At least you've done that, you've considered doxamine, maybe have used doxamine, and they're still frustrated, still severe, still relapsing. Think of these four drugs. And at best, it's a judgment call. You know, some of it depends on your tolerance of risk, including me, and or the patient's tolerance of risk. But as a rule, somebody says, look, I don't want to take chances. Maybe Cellcept is the better choice. I'll get into cost and, and things otherwise. If somebody says, what, is the, what would you take, doc or um, uh, physician assistant, what would you take yourself if you had a choice? And if you say, look, I want the one that has the best success rate, maybe cyclosporin. But it's an essay question, not a one best answer. All right, factors in drug choice. The provider and the patient's tolerance of risk and your experience. 
And at least from, I, I've worked most with resident education, and of course the, the Julie and Kristen and Angelie and some of that have worked with us as physician assistants you know, are heavily dependent on what we, we're teaching. But I always tell our residents, and this would hold true for this audience, that you can always co-manage. Let's say it's a drug you think would be good for this person, but you don't know, you don't, your experience isn't great on the particular drug. You know, send to a, a, a referral center, get the patient started on the drug, and then co-manage from there. And I, we've, some of the members in the audience I see here that we've had patients like that. It's, it's really, I might say I'll see them once or twice a year, and they might be seen by the local provider, including physician assistants, maybe every two months. But that sort of co-management, I think, is a useful way to consider these drugs. Cost. The ones that have all those different formulations, I, I, I gave you, um, you know, Celsep versus Myfortic, very costly. Uh, Sandimmune versus the Neoral and its cousins, very costly. And so very often the patients copay or their insurance just make those not possible. So what do you choose? Well, methotrexate, azathioprine, much more cheap. Uh, patient age, for all the above, very young, very old. Now, I'm kind of curious what Anita will say later today, Dr. Hagstrom, but, uh, but for kids, normally people are much more conservative. When in doubt, if you take that whole menu I gave you on that separate handout, I'd say the moderate immunosuppressive that has the most experience for kids is methotrexate. The biologic that has the most experience nationwide in kids is uh, Enbrel. And I think, you know, at least in kids so often, it's which one has somebody had the, I don't know if guts is the right word, but somebody did a study got us some experience that we can rely on. And usually those two drugs for various immunologic diseases in kids, along with prednisone, lead the way because we've used them the most. So I've got two tables. In, in your handout, they're in just black and white. And they kind of translate, just when I copy and paste them, they come into this nice little format. And I, I, uh, I think the way to look at this, think back what I said on the recognition recall. Recognition recall, again, means you don't have to pull the fact out of the air, just as long as you can recognize it when you think. Okay, for instance, what labs am I gonna order with methotrexate? And I just think, okay, it's blood toxic, liver, and kidneys excreted, so I gotta pay attention to those three. Azathioprine, you know, mostly hematologic and liver. Cyclosporin is a whole different story. Lipids are a big issue, way underappreciated, plus renal function. But those that come from repetition, you can always look it up. I have a book you might consider. But uh, so Mike posed a picture for me when he was a resident. I, I was trying to make a point on this slide that if the resident had one of my copies of my book, they, they were uh, inspired. But if they held two copies, they were ecstatic. And I don't think I ever paid you for that, did I, Mike? Did I? Anyway, voluntary. But... Uh, very rough attempt at humor. So here is a situation where well, this is, can always be looked up. You know, everybody has their uh, smartphones now, and a lot of this sort of thing, you can look up in Hippocrates, for instance, but the, the frequency and the specific tests aren't routinely in some of those electronic sources. But here, there's two slides in a row. The first slide, how do we monitor? And that's the second slide. The first slide is, what are comorbidities that shape the choice? So back to that question. If somebody says, well, what do you use first on a severity topic? And again, I just say, depends if. And much of the depends if is comorbidities. So for instance, if they already have leukopenia, I put a red equals extreme caution. 
And so I would stay away from methotrexate. Cyclosporin and methotrexate are kind of reciprocals. The things we worry most about, hematologic and liver, for methotrexate are almost no problem at all with cyclosporin. So that reciprocity makes a big difference. You've already started one and they had some organ problems, then the other is usually okay. Uh, renal disease, of course, is one time they, they meet. Liver disease, uh, probably best choice cyclosporin, very reasonable to use Cellcept, whereas tremendous risk with uh, methotrexate azathioprine. Renal disease, it's the cyclosporin is toxic to the kidney, whereas methotrexate is not. Although you use that once a week dosing, if the kidneys aren't functioning, much higher side effect risk. And I, I was involved along with another doc 30 years ago on a patient that died from um, methotrexate. And it wasn't like I said, okay, I ne I'll never use it again. It was, we said, okay, what could we do differently? Had a creatinine of 1.7, was diabetic, was obese. And I'd say between the two of us underreacted with leucovorin. But the point is that the kidney function is the issue not, is it toxic to the kidney? Hyperlipidemia, the most caution in this list with cyclosporin, of course, prednisone would have the same. Hypertension, again, these pluses mean good to use. Uh, cyclosporin should be avoided. Diabetes, uh, prednisone, no doubt a problem there. And just think back on methotrexate, the things that increase the risk for liver disease include obesity, diabetes, and in general, metabolic syndrome. So you would steer away from those patients. And then finally, pregnancy, about the only one um, that's reasonable to use is the cyclosporin, if it's possible. If it's already happened, then none of the above. The nice thing about uh, prednisone is, in so many settings like lupus and asthma, it's been used so much in pregnancy worldwide that there's a pretty good experience. And you can get pretty good mileage. For pregnancy, I had, I don't know what the relationship is, my cousin's wife's sister comes in with dermatomyositis, and she had a risk factor of being a relative. Usually if it's a healthcare provider or a relative, bad things will happen more, it seems. But the point is uh, that she had severe disease, and we co-managed her, but basically cyclosporin we use with very thorough informed consent because it was category C. I lump B and C as proceed with tremendous caution. Category D and X don't go there. That matter if it's a D or an X, don't go there. So category C with very careful informed consent and decision making, you can possibly use it. But at least two of these, microphenol just went from a C to a D. It's, it's not got a real specific set of findings, at least not that I'm aware of. Azathioprine was already a D and then a methotrexate and X. So you look at this, you say, well, that all makes sense now. And then tomorrow you say, okay, what did Wolverton say? And that's where you just repeated going through it. When patients have this issue, come back to this sort of list, and it helps you decide which drug you can use. And the next page. And I have, of course, in the book some uh, guidelines. Where in the very first of the four books, it was one of the things I thought there ought to be a way to put that in a table. And it was kind of fun to at least come up with a way that worked reasonably well. But when you put it in comparison form, in this case, the pluses mean monitor carefully. So we're basically, it's just almost the same sequence and all. And so you can just say, you can go horizontally, okay? We can say uh, methotrexate, azathioprine, most important hematologically, but I still get a CBC here. AST, ALT, most important for these two. 
but also some importance for these. In fact, almost any systemic drug like colchizine, for instance, that has even some risk, I just get a CBC, AST, ALT. Those two sites are the sites of most frequent trauma. The liver panel, there's always cost discussion. A panel may, in some settings, cost more than the individual tests. Medicare, at least last I heard, didn't want us getting a panel if individual tests are all that we need. Lipids only for uh, cyclosporin renal, like I said, for methotrexate cyclosporin. And here's one that is extraordinarily important. Let's say if cyclosporin is the most effective drug on this list. I'd say there's about a fourth of the people that you can't have a therapeutically effective dose without seeing the creatinine rise. And the protocols are real specific versus your baseline. Let's say your baseline creatinine is one, and they say 30% higher equals reduce the dose, 50% higher stop the drug. You can still be in normal range at 1.3, 30% higher than 1, and have a, a need to reduce the dose. What happens, cyclosporin has a functional change in the kidney before it gives structural change. If you follow the guidelines, pretty well-published guidelines, lower the dose when the creatinine rises, you'll be fine. It says limit it to one or two years, one in the States, two in Europe. The fact is if somebody's doing well and it's the drug that's best for them, properly monitored and lowering the dose as low as you can, you can use longer. Probably on those I would co-manage. But anyway, you can look at the rest. The only thing that's really kind of odd, hypertension, of course, with cyclosporin and prednisone, but magnesium potassium uric acid, I'm, I'm pretty much a slacker. It's in, in the table in, in the book I do. John Koo wrote the chapter. But uh, I, I do maybe a time or two at the start, but mainly with cyclosporin. Again, you can refer to this, but mainly CBC, AST, ALT, just because that's pretty good for most any systemic drug. And then both the BUN creatinine and at least lipids, possibly early on get magnesium, potassium, uric acid. This sort of thing can always be looked up, but at least it gives you an idea how you think. You don't say, well, I'll use methotrexate, then azathioprine, then cyclosporin, because uh, it, there's too many dependencies. Particularly in, in the country as it is now, we're, we're always in the bottom half of the top 10 of obesity statistics. Um, we, one of our residents who's from Louisiana who's finishing up, she brought in some Cajun cooking from Yats. And I'm not going to make any public comment on Yats other than she said, this sort of thing is part of why we're in the top two for obesity. Well, the reality is, as, as we deal with these problems, obesity gives NASH, which makes liver risk greater with many of these drugs. And so just in general, CBC, AST, ALT, most any systemic drug that has a risk, get those. Let's briefly go through biologics. Right, first, phototherapy. I, I don't do a, a lot, but there are people who say, look, financially, I can't afford those systemic drugs, or I've had them and they don't work, or I've had them and they cause me this or that problem. Do you have anything else? And many times, phototherapy is the answer. PUVA is maybe a little better, but it's more cumbersome, more risk, narrowband UVB. I had a student one time for a project, very many students are looking to get into derm, um, will uh, you know, try to do a few papers that may get some attention to the selection committees. But this one, I said, why don't you look up? It's narrowband UVB has been out long enough that we probably should have some cancer statistics. And she came up pretty much empty-handed that uh, even though narrowband's been around 15, 20 years, we're not seeing melanoma reports or uh, squamous cell. 
So I think the safety is good and it's very easy to use at home if it works well in the office. Just for curiosity, how many people have phototherapy at the office you practice at? Half? More than half? Looks half or more. And by the way, back to what I said, home unit, one-time expense. This picture of the biologics we use for psoriasis, if, if it's 25,000 for the regular doses and then you use 40 once a week uh, for Humira or you use 90 milligrams every three months for Stellara, then you're up to 40 to 50,000. So this 2,500 one time is not bad. Then lastly here, the omalizumab story, since it just got into our hands for urticaria, I thought, well, I'll at least look. And it was of these, these categories, by far the most articles were on omalizumab when I was looking at this yesterday. And well, the best I can tell is it'll be like urticaria. It's not just like on asthma, you have to get an IgE level and follow that for asthma treatment, whereas um, the urticaria, they say don't follow the IgE or don't base the dose on the IgE, and I bet that that's the way it'll be for atopics, but it's too early to call. Uh, don't know which of these will be taking the lead, if any. And I'll just say it, suffice it to say, until it's in officially indicated for one of these drugs, you're gonna have trouble getting the drug, because so many times the insurance says you can't prescribe it if it's off-label. That's just one way they can save money. So just be aware that these are starting to be looked at. And I think the last one just says, thanks. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, I was wondering if I am steroids, uh, risk of like avascular necrosis, osteoporosis, that kind of stuff. Can you talk, touch on that? The, uh, I think PML for um, Rituximab is just as anxiety-provoking as avascular necrosis is for steroids. And, and the rule of thumb for steroids and avascular necrosis, which is the same as aseptic necrosis, uh, which is the same as osteonecrosis, all of those, it, is, it typically needs to be enough uh, duration and dose to give some cushionoid changes to get the same amount of fat deposition in the bone marrow to put people at risk. And there's a lot of reasons why there's reports with IM steroids occasionally and PO prednisone. Um, but those, if you just take two events, one, one in 100 risk of event A, one in 100 risk of event B. In other words, 1% of people getting prednisone, 1% of people getting osteonecrosis, then one out of 10,000 times they'll overlap by chance alone. So I think whatever reports out there for IM steroids are primarily for that reason. I've got something I wrote uh, it's in journal or dermatologic therapy, if, if anybody's interested, more thoughts uh, about four years ago. But the point is, I think there's a theoretical risk. You'll never be faulted for mentioning it. Do I routinely? No. I don't think, since it's only averaging one or two milligrams per day and not producing uh, cushionoid changes, I don't think it's a true risk. One more question. Do you have a favorite reference book for monitoring medications as far as how often, in addition to what labs to order? Yeah. And all three of these guys are in on the deal. Uh, a fair question, but I, if you take what we do in the book I have, Comprehensive Dermatologic Drug Therapy, all the chapters are pretty well referenced on where those come from. But there's just, and I don't mind if, if, if you bought the book or have the online reference, to just make copies of those tables and just put them in a little folder and they give the frequency, which tests, what to do baseline, what to do follow-up. And so a lot of what inspired me about doing this uh, was that I didn't see a source that had those monitoring guidelines before what I did. And what I did, of course, it was a lot of help from a lot of people to put that book together. 
but I, I hate to be self-serving, but I hate not to. Yeah, so I, I have a conflict of interest. Oh, my kid's through college now, but, but one of them still may go through graduate school, so I could still use some donations. All right, well, thanks again for your attention. I guess Witt's gonna take it from here. <laughs>